Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, as you can tell, uh, something's going on with my voice. Now, this past week, I actually, for the first time since I was like six, I think, got diagnosed with, I had strep throat. Uh, and so it didn't even, even when they told me they were testing me for strep, I was like, that's going to waste your time. I don't have that. Uh, anyway, so pray that my voice uh, stays at least for the next couple minutes. Anyway, uh, pray for Luke. Luke is uh, just north of Huntsville. Uh, at First Baptist Church of Hazel Green. He was doing a, a, then again, does this place really exist? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, but anyway, he did a disciple now this weekend, and he's preaching at First Baptist Hazel Green this morning, so uh, be uh, in prayer for him as he travels back today as well. I did forget one announcement earlier, so please excuse me to do an announcement real quick. Last night, we had our Valentine's banquet. Thank you to Eliza and her team uh, for that. It was a great turnout. Uh, but also there's an auction that we were doing, and it's still going on until noon tomorrow. There's a list and a QR code in the foyer if you want to, if you're interested in that. And so I forgot to mention that earlier, so thank you for allowing me to do that now. Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible, that's where we will be uh, this morning. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago we started Acts 19 when Paul arrives back in Ephesus. Uh, and there he spends uh, some couple years in Ephesus, and we see... Uh, how he had met people who were John, disciples of John the Baptist, had not yet heard of the Spirit, and they had received the Spirit, got saved that day, accepted Christ, and, uh, and then how he spent time in the synagogue that Luke picked up last week, and then as he was uh, still in Ephesus doing his just normal uh, work, uh, that they said that uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles through, through, through the hands of Paul, that even his handkerchiefs and aprons, uh, that touched the skin, would heal people, and uh, deliver them from demon uh, possession. And then we met the sons of Sceva, uh, who tried to do the same. And actually, I heard one guy say they, they, they went from sons of Sceva to streakers of Sceva uh, by the end of the story because uh, they came in trying to uh, uh, cast out demons. They themselves were driven out by the demons. And so, uh, anyway, this morning, we pick up in verse 21. Uh, and don't freak out, and I'm going to go all the way to verse 41. Uh, 20 verses this morning. Uh, it's a great morning to have barely a voice and have to read 21 verses, but uh, uh, it's where we are, and so I'm, we're going to trust the Lord that he will uh, give us the strength. So anyway, let's uh, turn our attention to the word of the Lord. Verse 21 of chapter 19. So now after these events, and so these are the events we just mentioned, uh, remember uh, the, the sons of Sceva and uh, the believers who had, had once uh, partaken in uh, magic and idol worship came and began to burn them up, and the word of the Lord was prevailing and increasing. And so after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Anytime you see something like no little disturbance means it's a big one. Uh, and so something big happens here. And so uh, no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, or Diana, yours may, but Artemis, uh, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in a similar trade and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that 
not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only uh, that this trade of ours may become disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed of her magnificence, and she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, the Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him uh, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know what they had come together, why they had come together. I love the uh, almost sarcasm that Luke is writing in this. Uh, that some of the crowd prompted Alexander, of whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that, she, that fell from the sky? Seeing then that those things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet to do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open." And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. And if you seek anything further, it shall be settled on a regular in a regular assembly. For we are in the danger of being charged with rioting, rioting today, since there is no cause that can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless His word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray now as we turn our attention to it, God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. God, we pray that this morning that your spirit will open us to see, for we can see the word of the Lord and fall in love with the Lord of the word. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said? All right, so this text is really going to break down. Obviously, the main thing going on in the end of Acts 19 is this riot. But before we get to the riot, Luke kind of gives us some indication, really. It's this transitional verse that you see uh, in verses 21 and 22, some Paul's future travel plans. And so because up after this point, after chapter 19, man, Paul's, Paul's attention is to Rome. That's where he wants to get to, and that's where we'll see when we get to the end of the Acts. He, he, he gets to Rome. Uh, and so from, from here on out, like that's his mindset it's to get to Rome actually and to get to Spain, but we see that his, his mind is to get to Rome. So we see the first couple of verses and this is, like I said, not the big narrative, but it's transition. So it's important for us to see just, uh, one of the things I love about the book of Acts, and we've done this over and over again is usually when Paul, when he like, matter of fact, when he writes the, the letter to the Corinthians, do you know where he is? He's in Ephesus. And so then this, this time, so we can read the book of 1 Corinthians to know a little bit more about his time in Ephesus. And so we read that uh, here in verse 21 and 22, after 
these events, after the word of the Lord continued to increase prevailing mightily, and those who had believed in Christ came confessing and divulging their practices, they, the Spirit had led him to go kind of out of his way, but he wants to get to Jerusalem. Uh, so he wants to go to Macedonia and Achaia, uh, which is the opposite direction of Jerusalem, but he specifically wants to go there. And we find that reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I, I certainly not give that to you. Yeah, let's read this together. 1 Corinthians, I'll pull up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 16. So this is where we understand. So Paul's in Ephesus and he's writing. Uh, actually, what's really cool is that we see in this letter that you see that uh, in 19... Verse 22, that Timothy and Erastus is the ones he actually sent ahead of him into Macedonia. And so when you read Corinthians, it says this, Now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be none, no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you uh, accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So why does Paul want to go to uh, Macedonia and Achaia, uh, then to Jerusalem? Because he wants the church of Macedonia and Achaia to take up a, a gift offering, if you will, for the, poor, for the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So that's what we pick up on in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, that the reason why this is here is that we see Paul's heart, not just for uh, territories that don't have never heard of Jesus, but even churches that are established, and especially brothers and sisters who uh, are poor. And so the Judean church or the church in Jerusalem were known to be very poor. So his intent was for the church of Macedonia and Achaia to uh, take up a law. So if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you even uh, or even spend the, uh, the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do, not want, uh, you I do not want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus unto Pentecost, and here's why. This is why we see that he stayed back in Ephesus, but he sent Timothy and Erastus on. He said, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. And it also says the Bible just kind of put is all together. Anyway, so we see the reason why, like Paul wanted to go to Macedonia, then go to Jerusalem, but he stayed back in Ephesus. He sent Timothy and Erastus on to prepare that gift. So when he came through, he could pick it up. He could take it to Jerusalem. But the reason why he stayed back is because there was a great opportunity, but there was also many adversaries. That even though he, the Spirit had led him to go this direction, he still needed to stay in Ephesus. And little do we know that the next verse is one of those great adversaries. So we pick up in verse 22, 23. So this riot happens in Ephesus. Things get crazy. People were just yelling for two hours, great as Artemis. Could you imagine that? Or like being the guy Alexander, right? So Alexander just ended up in this, in this uh, theater. There was like some 20,000 people could be in here. And he just was with the crowd. All of a sudden, they throw him up on the stage like, all right, Alexander, go say something. And he goes up there, don't know what to say. And then before he can open his mouth, they get him off the stage. And so anyway, it's just chaotic. And so before we get to that, 
I kind of want to just kind of introduce the riot, how we arrived at this place. Because it looks like things just hit the fan as soon as we get to verse 23. But there, there's time lapse that happened between the first conversions in Ephesus and the, the word of God increasing. It was to say in verse 20, it continued to increase and prevail mightily. And another thing that was happening as a result of that, they were working in tandem, is that not only were people getting saved, but people who had already been saved, I mean, there was like a, like a spirit of repentance in Ephesus, even among the church, that they were saying, man, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but man, we've been still holding on to these, this, the, this, uh, what we used to do. What is the word? Uh, divulging their practices and confessing their sins. And so you see God at work just through the, in, through the word, but also the church of God ultimately just being the church. That, that the, the way we, we talk about like the great, I remember last year, and I'm not like doubting anything, but like the, the, the revivals or the spiritual awakenings that were going on on college campuses, and I'm not speaking to either side of that, but one thing that we often see uh, when we think about God moving and the Spirit working, oftentimes we just see it in just like these dramatic forms of like, we're going to worship, we're going to sing songs for like 17 hours, nobody's going to go home. What you see scripturally, a true move of the Spirit is really a trust in Jesus, but a spirit of repentance. That when the Spirit is actually moving, the people of God, those who even know Jesus, then there would be a spirit of repentance even upon the, uh, among the people of God that we would say, hey, I love Jesus and I know Jesus, but the Spirit is moving and there are areas in my life that are not glorifying to Him and we're in a constant state of repentance. And that's what's going on in Ephesus. You have people that once were worshiping at the temple of Artemis that go, hey, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. That they had actually found a hope and a peace and so things were going Crazy behind the scenes, but I will remind you that we've seen in the model of the book of Acts is that any time there was progress and gospel proclamation and kingdom advancement, it always was met with it's always met with opposition of the enemy. We've seen it over and over again in the book of Acts. We, I don't I don't have time to go back through the past 19 chapters, but every chapter there's an opposition every time the gospel goes forth, whether that from a religious front or from. Uh, uh, what we eat front, or whether that be from uh, an idol or now money and greed, uh, that's always being met with a front. Now, I would remind you that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, talking to people who would, some would eventually become followers of Jesus, some would be the church, but him in the Sermon on the Mount speaking about the church one day, it says, you are the salt of the earth, and if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? For it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet, people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So I think before we get to the riot, we need to kind of, like I said, bring some layers back of what's going on in that world, in Ephesus. As the word was prevailing and it was victorious and the church was living out holy lives in the presence of bystanders, Jesus said, listen to me, part of the, the nature, a part of qualities or characteristics of, a, of the church and follower of Christ is that you're, you're salt and you're light. I, I understand that Jesus is the light of the world. It's, it's not our own light. The, the light that we have comes from him first. But when you think about salt and you think about light, salt in itself, obviously it preserves things. But have you ever gotten into the ocean and you didn't know you had a cut 
And you found out very quickly that something was going on and because that salt. So there's a sense in the dynamic of salt that when it rubs against the grain, when it rubs against uh, the, the sores or the, the cuts or the tears, if you will, of the world, that it's not necessarily going to be the most peaceful thing for the world to experience. That when there's a presence of the church of people who have been adopted into a kingdom, who are living a different type of life, that they were delivered and saved out of a domain of darkness and now transferred into a whole new kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, if you will, is going to not necessarily fit perfectly. You with me? Everybody, this means yes. But we're also light. So light, not only light is obviously, we like light, and light illuminates things. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but you know what doesn't like light? Dark. Darkness hates light. Matter of fact, that's what the Gospel of John teaches that light came in, the world loved darkness. And so, for the very nature that the qualities of the church that Jesus said would be salt and light, the idea that we could just navigate this world and not come into conflict is making God a liar. And so, what you're seeing in Ephesus is that God's actually doing a work and the people are just not fitting in anymore. Because they don't think the same. They don't do the same. They don't feel the same. They don't like the same things anymore. Not because they're biggest, but because they love Jesus. I think it's going to come up on the screen, but Leonard Ravenhill said it like this. The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy. Then put him back into the unholy world and keep him holy in it. That's exactly what you're seeing in Ephesus is that there's these people who they came to know Jesus and they began more sanctified and they just began to love one another and live differently. And that before long, like just their presence, like I said, not being biggest, but just them being who they were as, as followers of Christ, they became less or the world became, I guess, less tolerant of that. What we see in this text is that the gospel is a radical message that causes radical change that can cause a radical conflict. That the gospel isn't just this ABC, one, two, three, repeat after me and be with me for eternity. That rhymed in it. Good job. (laughs) But the gospel is a radical message that says you are lost and broken and depraved and you deserve the very wrath of God and there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right before that God but God who is rich in mercy even while we were yet sinners Christ died for the ungodly that you who you who were once far off had no hope now can be brought near by the blood of Christ that's radical in, in, in a system in an age that was defined by idolatry that said, hey, and we're going to get to it. I'm getting ahead of myself, so just get over it. Uh, but that, that says, hey, you got to have these little dolls. And you have these little dolls, and you go into the temple, and you, and you get them to bless it. Then you take it back home, and you put it in your house. If it's in your house, and that goddess is going to protect you. And that goddess, but if you don't do that, then you're not going to have protection. And then thanks be to God that this radical message of the gospel says, you don't have to do anything. It's not about you being able to perform or make sure everything's right in your house or go to this temple to worship at this place. That God sent forth his son so that we could be made children of God. It's radical. It's a radical change. How, how dare we say it's not a radical change that if we were once dead in our sin and now through salvation that the very spirit of God comes to live in us, how can it not be a radical change? 
But because that unholy man or unholy woman who God's made holy, if we get placed back into an unholy place, things go haywire. So what we see at the, it, in 19, as I said, the word was increasing. The church was finally firmly committed to Christ. The gospel became countercultural, if you will, economically, spiritually, socially, politically. It's Acts chapter 17 when in Thessalonians, whenever it said, who are these dudes who are turning the world upside down? And what we see from this text, and I want you to hear me clear when I say this, they weren't doing it by having riots and boycotts and marches, but being through, but, 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 but being through the purity devotion to the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word, that God, God used them, that the gospel angered people because it confronts their false religion, their sin, their inadequate worldview, and it exposes the emptiness of their lifestyle. You see in this text that ultimately the gospel, it, inv it invades and it, it, it questions the sources of, of money and pride and prestige. It was being threatened and they aroused to anger. What we see in the text is that in Ephesus, there was a temple of Artemis or Diana. The worship of Artemis was widespread all throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, they said that actually some uh, 30 three different shrines throughout the Roman Empire. So potentially the worship of Artemis or Diana could be the most widespread cult in the Roman Empire. But inside Ephesus set one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, this temple that they're talking about. One writer says about this, about the, about Ar the temple of Artemis. It was indeed a, a hub of Ephesian economic life. It was an impressive building, some 165 feet by 345 feet in dimension and built on a platform that's 200 40 feet by 420 feet. The entire edifice was elaborately adorned in brilliant colors and gold leaf. The altar was about 20 square feet and it contained a massive image of the goddess with a veiled head with animals and birds decorating her body and her lower body. And the animals there were symbolic of her status as the ancient Asian mother goddess, the goddess of nature who was believed to protect and preserve the fruitfulness of of all living things. And every year around springtime for the Festival of Artemis, pilgrims by the hundreds and thousands would make their way to Ephesus to, to come to this festival of Artemis where they celebrate and worship this goddess Artemis. And one of the biggest economic booms in Ephesus was that, the, that those, they would come in, kind of like if you go to Washington, D.C., right? Uh, and there's like, or other places, there's like just souvenirs everywhere. Like get that picture in your head. So they would, people would make their pilgrimage into Ephesus and these craftsmen would just be waiting with these dolls to sell these dolls. But it was not just a souvenir, but they would literally say, go now, go into the temple and, and bless this or do a sacrifice in front of the, the image of Artemis and then take it back home. And if you keep it in your home, then she's going to protect you all year long and you're going to be fruitful uh, uh, with family and everything else that if you, if you do that, so you can imagine just how lucrative, if I can make one of those dolls is, right? So that's what we see, this temple. And this is still obviously introduction to the riot, by the way. Get the picture of that temple, Artemis, known for the worship of Diana or Artemis, that it was the, a goddess of fertility. But what was going on in, the, in Ephesus is that God was building another temple that stood in stark contrast to the temple of Artemis. 
this is where it starts rubbing. That there's another temple being made, not with stone, but with lives and people. God was building a temple of people who had trusted in Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, which I think is not just by happenstance that he talks about a temple, uh, but he says this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure that is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So yes, there was this, what's going on behind the scenes, there was this temple to Artemis that was full of idolatry, but through the work of the gospel is that God was building another temple, and that temple stood in stark contrast to the temple of Artemis. That temple being the people of God. That the new temple... It was not built by hands, but by the Spirit of God. It stood in direct contrast to the temple in Ephesus. One was a place that had life. One was lifeless. One delivered on its promise, and one sold a bag of false hopes. One kept people in bondage to a system, and one set people free to hope and that couldn't be bought, earned, or manufactured. You can see the dynamic tension growing in Ephesus as God began to do a work. So because of that, a riot takes off. And so first, we see the start of the riot. That was our introduction. I'm sorry. Let's move forward. Verse 23. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So here, directly, Luke says, hey, this is what's going on, but there's this guy named Demetrius, and he makes a lot of money by making these little shrines. But... Demetrius, it seems like in everything I've studied, is almost like he was the leader of a guild of craftsmen, that he was able to quickly draw other people and get an audience, if you will. And so, obviously, I believe his motivation more than anything was his greed, but he kind of masked it in this pseudo-religious, almost patriotic, if you will, uh, not just bring the craftsmen and say, hey, Paul's taking our money away, but he's also like, actually, we see it in the text. Look, he says... Uh, he gathered workmen and similar trades and said, man, you know that, the, that from this business we have our wealth. So there's there his finances. But then he gets a little clever. He says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so they're, they're selling the bag is that this little dude right here is the God. And so then it gets a little more clever. He says, there's a danger that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, uh, but that the temple, here it is, he's going to get back. The temple and its beauty may, of the great goddess Artemis may be found, uh, counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence. And so we see this like, pseudo-religious that's really just masking his, his greed. Uh, and so what we see, the, the reason why the riot is that this, the gospel and what God had done, first of all, the gospel threatened his pocketbook. I'll step into that for a second. He, he doesn't lie. He ultimately says, hey, we make our money off of this, and if, if Paul doesn't shut up, then we're going to be broke. Come on, like, 
trusting, like he has, he, he, he has zero desire to actually hear about Jesus. He just know Jesus is getting away his pocket. You're getting away of what his, his income, his money, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to totally mess that system up, if you will. And I wrote it down like this, that people allow the desire for temporary wealth to keep them from escaping eternal judgment all the time. That people build their life and, and say, man, look at Demetrius, but are we any different? That we put all our hope and our faith and our trust in this dollar that can literally burn up right now and I don't have it anymore? And the gospel, man, this is why you see in in Ephesus when the church was doing their thing, like the gospel confronted them on every front. It wasn't just like in the bars, if you will. Like it was economically, it was socially, it was culturally, it was politically. Like when when God really took God a hold of the church and the word of God, like the church couldn't help but to influence all of culture and all of society. And even, obviously, we see that the gospel threatened his pocketbook. We also see that the gospel threatened his pride. Look at it. He says, not only could we lose our wealth, but this trade that we have could lose its reputation. Like we got a good reputation here. Like people, people come here, and they're looking for our shrines. They come here, and they're looking for these little dolls that we can make. And if people stop buying them, then I'm going to lose my reputation or my report among the people. So one was that the gospel threatened his, his greed, but also his, his pride. And how many people have missed the kingdom because they're too prideful to, A, to even confess their own sin, but confess that they lack? Also, the gospel threatened his idols. Look at verse 27b. There's danger not only that we lose a reputation, but also that the temple of the great goddess in Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed of her magnificence. Why, why this riot? Because the work that God was doing in the church was so stark in contrast to the darkness that they were steeped in that ultimately they just responded a way that outside of the, the work of the Holy Spirit that all depraved men will. He didn't say, man, we, maybe we need to really assess what Paul is saying. He's like, no, man, we got to get rid of Paul. Like there's no, no desire there. But in a little bit, the gospel even threatened his patriotism. Verse 27, it's even emphasis here. He's like... Uh, <coughs> there's danger, they said, they know, but Artemis, that may be counted as nothing, that she may be even deposed of her magnificence, uh, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. So Ephesus was known as the epicenter of, of the worship of Artemis. And so if people aren't worshiping Artemis, then even Ephesus may lose its prestige because people are going to start come, stop coming here. Do you see like the, 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 whole, the whole picture of what God is doing through the word and through his people, that their lifestyle, and we're going to get to it in a second, wasn't that they went in and just marched up halls. Matter of fact, later on, the city clerk said, hey, I can't find anything these people have done wrong. Matter of fact, that ain't even blasphemed your goddess. And so there's something to that. We'll get to that in a minute. But, man, the gospel caused great disturbance because it ultimately, it ultimately illuminated people to their, how can I say it, their sin, 
There's self-sufficiency. The emptiness of what they bow down to and the things they built their life upon. And so I just want to say, stop for a moment. Do you understand that, yeah, we don't worship at the temple of Artemis, but if we are finding our source of joy, peace, contentment, comfort, salvation outside of the person and the work of Christ, then it is empty living and empty hope. There is no substance for hope outside of Christ. We look at Demetrius and say the reality is for the world, we see how the world for the most time responds, but thanks be to God, you're here right now, sitting under the sound of my voice. And maybe the Holy Spirit is illuminating through the gospel that you have been placing your faith in something. And maybe, maybe it's like, maybe greed has kept you from fully placing your faith in Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's a man, people think that I'm a Christian already, but if I, if I, if I just say, I don't know him, and I'm going to place my faith in him, maybe that's what God's calling you to do today. Maybe, maybe our patriotism in South Mississippi could keep us from actually fully trusting in Jesus. For a lot of people, being an American is synonymous with being a Christian. That is not true. And oftentimes, we as church, we need to be careful who we're pledging our allegiance to, whether the lamb or the American flag. And so oftentimes, like we see here, man, if, man, if we stop doing this, the people are going to stop coming to Ephesus. And it's like, hey, well, for some of us, maybe even our idols have kept us from trusting fully in the Lord. And so, like, don't think about idols like in, I wish I had like a little toy up here because that's what I'm picturing Demetrius having. Idol worship for me and you looks a little different. Idol worship for some of us could be our jobs. Idol could be our hope for a future. You with me? Like everything we do bows down to that, what I want to have one day or be one day. Sometimes our idols uh, are not necessarily monetary or future plans. Sometimes our idols, <clears throat> believe it or not, could be the blessings called children, that my whole life is built around this little kid's happiness. And hey, I'm, hey God, I'm, I love my kids, but they make a terrible God. <laughs> but my whole life is built around their, this, that, and the other. And I said, Justin, you don't know, man, your oldest is only seven. I don't, I, I, yes, I don't know what it means to have a teenager that's a bit a part of a million different things, but I do, I do understand. As Adrian Rogers would say, when the good things take the place of the best things, they become bad things. And that whenever anything takes its rightful place that the Lord Jesus, the God, he alone is worthy to sit, then that becomes an idol. Our spouses. And I don't have to say anything because inside your head you're going, yeah, 
I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this, and this has become an idol in my life. This has become an idol in my life. And if that idol's kept you from trusting in Jesus, I want to implore on your, to you this morning to trust in the Lord Jesus, because in Him, in Him alone, can you actually have a fullness of joy and life and hope. And I'm going to look at Ephesus. It breaks my heart. They were yelling, and they didn't even know why they were yelling. That's how depraved they were. They were confused. They were broken. They were messed up. Sorry, it's the glasses that's making my eyes do that. There's a glare. So we see the start of the riot. Secondly, we see the nature of the riot. Look at verses 28 through 34. I'm just going to go quick. First of all, there was anger. When the gospel penetrates the deepest parts of the human nature, there's only one way that depraved nature is going to respond apart from the grace of God, and that is in anger. That's what we see here is that they responded in anger. But they responded in confusion. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. And there's this Gaius and Aristarchus who were missionary partners with Paul. They traveled with him. They grabbed them and drugged them in there. And when Paul wished to go in to the crowd, the, the disciples said, no, you don't, shouldn't go. And then you have these Asia arcs, people who were just really just high-ranking officials in the province of Asia. Most of them were just rich people, high-ranking, which is crazy to think about. It should give us an indication that if the if the nobles people of Asia didn't have a problem with Paul, that Paul must not have been going around being a, a J-E-R-K. I don't know if I can say that. With, like he wasn't going around just being a bigot. The, 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 he was actually at this point still accepted by the officials. Anyway, look at the, look at the it, it's funny, but at the same time it's sad. Then some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. They were so angry that they just blindly followed, and they're just yelling out, following everybody, don't even know why they're there. They're saying different things. There's anger, confusion, but you see a closed-mindedness. I mean, imagine this dude named Alexander. Well, that's, we don't know nothing of him. He just, he's a Jew that ends up in this place. And so I guess the thousands of people, and he just kind of gets shuffled in. You imagine him that day, hey, we're going down to going downtown. We're going to hang out, and all of a sudden he gets, he gets caught up in this crowd, and then he gets into this theater, and all of a sudden, all right, Alexander, get up there and speak for us. What? What am I supposed to say? So anyway, Alexander gets up there, and he's, he just raises his hands, and then they realize the Jews like, no, we don't want to hear from you. Sit back down. All right, well, get back down here, right? Could you imagine like that scene, right? But what you see is there's a closed-mindedness to these people. It's like, here's the Jew who could stand up and actually may even say something. They realize the Jews like, we don't want to hear from him. Blind leading the blind. And to be frank with you we got the picture of the temple that God is being that is building in his church we got the picture of the temple of Artemis and though these are some thousands of years removed I believe that God is still building that temple today and the cultural climate of Ephesus is still prominent today that we live in a world that loves darkness and hates the light 
That the only reason we don't, and I've said this multiple times, the only reason we don't is because the work of God is done in our life. What you see here in Ephesus is still true today. And apart from the light of Christ shining to the darkness of the human heart, the world always responds in anger, blind loyalty, and closed-mindedness. That's why I, get, I, I, I struggled all week with this. And I told Ashley, like, these are one of those narratives, like, I don't know what the application is to this narrative. But the more I studied, the more I prayed, it was like, hey, Actually, let me, let me don't get ahead of myself. I think the greatest testimony is not just to yell at this world that you're wrong, but to do as Paul did. He reasoned and he persuaded. That's the hard thing to do. The hard thing for the Christian to do is to sit down with somebody who doesn't believe like you and, and try to persuade and talk to. It's easier for the church, and we've done it a lot in Western definitely an American Christianity that we have done, been going on the offensive, if you will, where we've, we've become more known about what we're against than what we're for in many areas. And we go on this defense and we go to, and I'm, that, has this, that has this area and that has this fear of, of timing and place. But the reality is what Paul did is he went and he sat down and he had conversations with people saying, this is the Messiah. This is who he is. This is the one that the Father has sent. It's hard to do. It's easier to yell at people and storm gates. It's harder to sit down and actually share the gospel with somebody. To show people the way, not just yell at people. What we see in this text is that kingdom advancement is not the result of weapons, force, or violence, but, the, but believers who are exalting Christ in an idol-filled world. Lastly, we see in this text is that there's an ending of the riot. A town clerk, who's a liaison in a Roman province that kind of went between the proconsuls and the Roman Empire. And look at what he says. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. As in, hey, the whole world knows what Ephesus is about. That's what he's saying. These dudes aren't going to change the mind. Anyway, seeing then, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, here it is, who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemous of our goddess. I think there's something there that these men that you're bringing in, they're not doing anything that, you call the, that you're saying that they did. Almost it gives a picture that they didn't come in just guns ablazing saying, you idolatrous, wicked person. Shame on you, sinner. You're going to die and go to hell. But it's almost like there's another level that they did it in a way that they infiltrated Ephesus in a way that by the way they lived, people saw that there was the Christ. Paul didn't come in, like I said, guns ablazing, attacking everything they did or thought of wrong. He came in and preached the pure word of the Lord and pointed Jesus to, uh, pointed to Jesus as a Christ. And many, listen to me, many believed and traded their idols for the one true God. The gospel being preached and the church being purified is what caused this emotion, this commotion. 
What caused this riot? It wasn't for churches trying to, to raise the feathers. What, what, what caused this commotion is the word of God was being proclaimed, going forth, and God was doing a work, listen to me, not just on the outside, but in the inside of the people. And because of that, God used that and began to infiltrate the community as the work that he was doing in the, in the purification of his people. We win people not just by pointing out what we disagree with about their life, but by exalting Jesus and living the way he has called and enables us to live. So what's the application? I think this morning we, we have to see here that God moves. Not Obviously, the Holy Spirit blows where the Holy Spirit wants to blow. No one knows. But what we see according to Acts is that, that God works where his word is being proclaimed. And so we commit to the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word. Secondly, may resistance we face be a result of the gospel, not a result of our own agendas and prejudices. The, 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 the commotion or the tension that they were facing was just because of gospel advancement. It wasn't because they had this prejudice or this is what they thought or they came and said, hey, you think this, but actually let me... Let me this is what I think. They didn't care about what they think. They cared about the gospel. Keep exalting Christ as your supreme treasure. How to, what's my response to, in this idol-filled world, child of God, may we continue to keep exalting Christ as our supreme treasure. And fourthly, Praise God that he has rescued you and me from the emptiness of greed, pride, and idols. Amen? Like, if anything, we should go, man, we're so Ephesus, but thanks be to God, he has rescued me from that. That's the gospel in that text is that we look at the man, they worship what? They'd probably look at us and go, they worship what? But thanks be to God, he and his love and kindness rescued us from that domain of darkness and the emptiness of what life is without him. Do you know Christ this morning? Have you trusted in him because he, he is the source of all that your heart longs for when it comes to words like joy and peace and hope, purpose, we don't come to him because of those things. We come to him for him, but a byproduct of knowing him, those things come with him. We come to Christ, who is peace, who is love. Have you trusted in him? What's kept you from trusting in Jesus? Greed, pride, idols. What was the other one I used? Patriotism. What's kept you from trusting? Will you trust in him this morning? Child of God, will you look to scriptures and go, thank you, God, for the work that you have done to open my eyes to see and trust in Christ. We're going to sing as a response to this song and how we were lost and dead, but Christ came. I'll be standing in the back if you need me. I promise I'm not contagious anymore. <clears throat> I can't promise you that because I'm not a doctor, but I ran fever in a couple of days and they didn't have a couple shots. So <clears throat> thanks be to God we made it through. <clears throat>
I'm going to sleep good in a little bit. Anyway, let's pray. If you need to talk, I'm in the back. Uh, the bands will come up, and they'll lead us in a time of singing. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that even at times, whenever we look to your text, and definitely in preparation to preach, and we go, God, we don't have a clue how we're supposed to teach that. Yeah, you would use a simple-minded, even sick person to communicate your words. So, God, I pray that as you did that today, God, that your Holy Spirit spoke. God, for this, if there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in Jesus, God, I pray that today was a day of salvation for them. God, for the believer in here who has struggled with even the idols still in our life, God, we thank you that your word reveals our own hearts to us, and ultimately that our, as a church father said, God, that our, our hearts are an idol factory. And God, even though we've been saved, God, we can still produce idols in our life. And so, God, I pray your Holy Spirit would, would expose those idols in our life, that we would be like the believers in Ephesus who brought their secrets and their magic books and laid them down to be burned. God, I pray that you would do that today in our hearts. God, I, I truly believe that every person sitting in this room who knows you, who is trusted in Christ, that God, we want, we want to make a difference in our community for the gospel. And so, God, may we understand that that work is not done by the scheme of man or the pragmatic approach to build it and they will come. But God, that's done through the power of your spirit at work through your word in the life of your people. So God, we pray that you'll use us. God, that we will submit to your spirit and walk by the spirit. God, that you would purify our lives even more so that not that we become judgmental around the world, but God, that we just don't fit. Peter says that we're strangers and aliens, sojourners and exiles. So God, may, may we, your Holy Spirit, allow us to feel a little more uncomfortable in this place called the earth and the world. To be able to remind us of home. God be with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stand.